you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at the last few verses of the book. Let's pray. Father, you've blessed us with your word and we're so grateful. We thank you, Father, for the book of Ephesians and all the incredible truths that are packed into this book. Father, we ask that you would continue to enrich in our lives through your word. And ask that this evening, as we finish this up, we pray, Lord, again, that you will uh, give to us again that desire to, to want to be influenced deeply by your, your word. Give to us, Father, that desire to want to be changed and transformed by your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us insight, give us understanding. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 6, beginning in 21, it reads this way, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus is a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So Tychicus apparently was the one who brought them this letter that Paul wrote. Paul considers this man to be a very dear brother. He's a faithful servant. Uh, He has uh, uh, called him this not only here but also in the book of Colossians. That he was a fellow slave or fellow servant of Christ. And so Tychicus was to inform the Ephesians of Paul's welfare. They were, he was to let them know how Paul was doing, uh, as well as what he was doing. Uh, the goal was to encourage these believers uh, through the work that Paul was doing and, and the results that he was getting. Uh, Paul was not the kind of missionary that would keep things to himself. He wanted the people of God to know what God was doing. That's how he viewed it. He wanted the people of God to know what God was doing. And he wanted them to know that their prayers were being answered. He wanted them to know what Satan was doing to oppose the work so that they could pray more efficiently and more effectively. So his motive was not selfish. He was not trying to get something out of them. So what Paul was doing here is he was kind of living out a a truth that we have often heard about the Christian life, and that is this. That nowhere in the New Testament do we find isolated believers. There's a great emphasis on the church, a great emphasis on our fellowshipping with each other as believers and our need for each other. Christians are often referred to as sheep in the Bible. uh, And sheep are by nature a group that flocks together. They need to be together. Um, And uh, the church is like that. It's an army. Uh, We need to stand together and fight together. And so the idea then is that Paul was not going to wait for them to ask him how things were going. He was making an assumption here, and I believe his assumption was correct, that these individuals that he had spent time with and he had taught, that they were truly interested in the work of the Lord. And they were interested in what he was doing. And they wanted to hear how things were were going. And so he was sending in this man who was going to let them know. Kind of like... um, you know, when, uh, even though we support several missionaries, there are certain ones that we, I guess you could say we're maybe a little closer to for various reasons. Uh, one of them was the Holston family because they came here. They, they grew up here. David grew up here in the church. 
uh, and uh, the church was kind of uh, instrumental in, in many different aspects of his life all along the way, including his education, uh, getting his pilot's license and getting involved in MAF and then, then the whole move out to Indonesia. And so many of us, because of that connection, we would pray more earnestly for them. Uh, we, we, were, we wanted to hear from them. We wanted to hear how they were doing. We wanted to hear what they were doing. Uh, I remember that every now and then when there was uh, rumors or maybe even true uh, stories coming out in the news about some violent act that maybe the Muslims uh, did in Indonesia, uh, usually the first question was, well, what about David and, and Natalie? Were they affected? Did it happen where they are? Or how close was it to them? You know, are they in danger? Do they need to come back? I mean, just all the time that happened. There was that, there was that interest and that was because, again, of our relationship with them and our love for them. And so that, and it should be that way, really, with all of the missionaries that we support. You know, as we, one of the reasons why we have them come back and share with us is so we can hear from them firsthand. It helps us to get to know them better. Um, you also kind of get a, a sense of their personality. Uh, you also kind of get a sense uh, of, hopefully, their love for their work and what they're doing. And, and we want to hear. We want to hear success. You know, we're not looking for success necessarily that there are all these huge, grandiose numbers. If there are, great. Uh, but we want to hear that progress, that the gospel uh, is making progress in these places. And so there's a real genuine interest uh, with that. And so Paul then, in sending this young man there, uh, wants to encourage their hearts. And it is encouraging when you're praying for those overseas and you hear how things are going. Well, you know, we prayed for that and look what God did. And we prayed for this and look what God is doing. And so it is a very exciting thing because we are a community, we are a family, uh, and we are connected because of Christ. And so Paul then is, is basically um, taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, and just kind of running on that assumption. And I believe that his assumption there is correct. If you look at verse 23, where he says, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three words there. There's three spiritual qualities that Paul often talks about. That's peace and love and faith. And and he uses all three of those words in this uh, verse here. And so basically what what he's saying is, is he's, he's ending his letter, so he's saying peace to the brethren. He's also saying and love to the brethren with faith. So Paul wanted them to continue in their love for other Christians. Uh, Paul has stated that here and in other letters that he wants their love for each other to continue to grow. He wants their love for each other to continue to intensify. He wants their love for each other uh, to continue to be made manifest uh, because he does understand that the relationships that we have with each other and what others see in the relationships that, or what others should see in the relationships that Christians have with each other, that displays the glory of And the power and the love of God. That is how those things are communicated to a lost world. Uh, Yes, the gospel message itself is the message that's the power of God to salvation. But what lends strength and credibility to that message? Again, when I say that, it doesn't mean that the gospel message needs credibility from an outside source. But this would be in the eyes of those that we're trying to reach. uh, In the eyes of those that are non-believers. When they see... Uh, and what they should see is this transformation that takes place in the lives of human beings. And, and the way they're going to see that is how we relate to each other, how we get along. Uh, again, it doesn't mean that we will never disagree. It's not that at all. It's the way we go about doing things. 
It's the way we disagree. It's the way that we resolve things. It's, it's the idea that we're thinking the best for each other. It's the idea that we're willing to, to sacrifice for each other. It's the idea that we're continuously willing to forgive each other regardless of what takes place. They need to see that interaction. They need to see that love. The world is dying for that. They desperately need that. They desperately want to have that sense of community, that sense of belonging. In fact, you'll notice that uh, in the sports world, especially uh, on the high school and college level, uh, and of course this happens on the pros as well, sometimes in different ways, but in in the school settings, one of the things that really promotes um, a, a team to do well, that enables the team to do well, is not only the team that has the best athletes, because there are several teams that have a good number of, of athletes, but it really has to do with the closeness uh, and the relationship that the players have with each other as well as with the coach. Now, there are many coaches who do that well, and they all don't end up being champions, but the ones who consistently do well through the years are the ones who create for their players that sense of belonging. There's something about that that enables us to achieve more together than we could ever do alone. It also helps us to achieve more together than we could together if we didn't have that kind of relationship. Uh, it was, uh, there's a story that when Lou Holtz first went to South Carolina, um, South Carolina, as you know, plays in the SEC, and they pretty much just lose all the time. And uh, he went there, and there was this expectation that he would turn that program around uh, and that it would be a miraculous turnaround just because of, of many reasons. And according to the story, during the first year that he was there, and they were kind of, you know, they, had, they were putting their game plans together and running the kids through practice and whatnot, you know, Lou Holt said that he could just tell there was, just, there was something that was missing. You know, the, team just, the team was a cohesive unit, like he was accustomed to in many of the teams that he coached. And so on, on, a, on one particular afternoon, he canceled practice and had all the players meet in some large meeting room, some nice, very comfortable meeting room, and he, and he explained to them that there were some things that were missing from the team and that they were going to get them worked out at that moment. And so what the team was expecting was he was going to give them a lecture on, you know, that they were being lazy and they weren't working hard and all those kinds of things. He didn't do any of that. What he did was he, he called out the name of a young player and asked him to stand up and share with the group where he was from, uh, what were his parents like, what was his high school like? How were things for him when he grew up? And he, and, he, and he told the young man, he says, just tell us honestly. And so the young man did. And as he explained himself, it, it kind of came out that uh, like many, many players that were on the team, uh, he didn't know who his dad was. His mom worked hard. He talked about uh, when he was younger being beaten up by some of his mom's uh, boyfriends and just kind of went through this really, you know, kind of a, a tragic kind of a story. Uh, and then he added on uh, how sports, organized sports, really helped him find a place, helped him to get through school, and that being a part of this team there, you know, what it meant to him, how important it was. And then when he finished, uh, Lou Holtz asked another player to get up and do that. Uh, and, I, and I believe, if I remember the story correctly, they were basically in that room for about four to five hours. And many, many of the players began to, uh, you know, just kind of share these things. And Lou Holt said that there was a transformation that took place in that team. As, as they drew closer, there was an understanding with each other. There was empathy uh, that they felt for each other. They began, they, they began to naturally develop uh, care and concern for each other as human beings, as individuals. And, and as I was hearing that story, I'm thinking, so if on a secular level, really on a non-spiritual, non-Christian level, 
this can have that kind of an impact. And, and Lou Holtz mentioned the team, uh, not only were they closer, they, they played better, they didn't go out and win a championship, but everything changed. The dynamic of the team changed drastically after that time together. And that's what they pointed to. So if, if the world recognizes that and the world is still starving for that, because again, a lot of players would tell you when they leave you know, playing football that they can't find what they had again. And they, they look for that. They want that. They, they want that togetherness, that, that kind of family atmosphere. Well, we, we have that. Sometimes we don't really recognize and grasp the greatness of, of what we have, that, that we have a, a community that cares. We, we may not be best buddies in, in, in every sense of the word, but, but there's a community that cares. I, I often wonder when I hear of these natural disasters, uh, what about the families? And there's a lot of them. And they're not involved in any church. Who do they lean on? Who's there to help them? Who cares? And unless some random person either gets the idea, or maybe it's a believer uh, who actually acts like a believer and and reaches out to them, they don't have the resources. They don't have a support system. I think that's why so many are screaming for the government to do something. Because there's nothing there. And if the government doesn't do anything... They will die alone. There's no one to check on them. There's none of that. And we actually, if you think, I mean, maybe you haven't thought about it, but we don't, we don't really have to worry about that. Many, many individuals involved in many churches across the nation, they never have to worry about that because of, of what we have together. And so that's what Paul, you know, as he just kind of throws these things together here at the end, which he's not doing in an unthinking way. Uh, these are things that he's stressed and taught on. You know, these are not just random words that he's using. These are concepts that he's developed, and he wants them to continue in uh, as far as the things that he's taught them to do. Uh, again, he wants them to continue their love for the other, other, uh, other Christians. Again, these are their spiritual brothers and sisters. He wants them to combine that love with their faith in God. So again, it's not just some sentimental thing. It's not just something that we feel for each other because we happen to get together. It is based on our faith in Christ. What we all have in, in, in union is, is our trust in Christ, our trust in what the Word of God says. Uh, we believe that. And so that's what feeds uh, our love for each other. That is, that's, that's foundational to what we are supposed to have as believers. In verse 24, then he says this. He says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Now, you may not be aware of this, but this verse is, is uh, very complicated in trying to understand what he's saying. And many of the academics that I've read, the commentaries that I've read, they, they all talk about that. And one of the reasons why it's difficult is, is uh, in the New King James that I read to you, where it says, um, with uh, all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, that last word sincerity there can be translated in corruption, it can be translated in corruptibility, it can be translated in mortality. And so it's trying to figure out what is Paul trying to communicate to them. So let me read to you here what one said, which I think is wrong, but I'm going to read to you what, what they say. It says, the words, love our Lord Jesus in sincerity, with an undying love are literally, again, incorruption or incorruptibility or immortality. So it has the idea that, believer, that the believer's love for the Lord Jesus Christ is to be pure, not corrupted with wrong motives or secret disloyalties. And that makes sense when you read that. And it appears to be correct. But as I, again, was looking through a lot of different places and trying to read uh, the reasonings why individuals would say one thing or another about the verse, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. 
Uh, let me read to you quickly what it says in, um, again, in other translations. In the New America Standard, it says, grace be, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So it sounds very similar. It doesn't use the word sincerity. It says with incorruptible love. But based on the word order and the way the sentence reads it, what I just read to you as far as the meaning makes sense. In the English Standard uh, Version, it says that we are to love our Lord Jesus Christ with love that is in, incorruptible. Uh, verse 24 in the NIV says, with an undying love. So again, as you read through the commentaries, they say this. This term and this phrase points out that in this love, there is no source of decay or change, that it does not contain within itself the seeds of dissolution, and that it is of such compactness that its elements cannot one another fall out and itself gradually perish. Now that's correct in that it's talking about what the love is or the quality of the love. But the part that I disagreed with earlier is where they say that what Paul is talking about here is that God's grace is given to those who love Christ with this incorruptible love. And I think that the emphasis is wrong. Now, he is emphasizing here the relationship or the personal relationship that we have with Christ or the commitment that we have to Christ. Because, again, he does say that we are to love our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is used. We are to love him. God, Paul wants God's grace to be given in greater measure to those who love God. Uh, and so I think what Paul is getting at here is this. We could say it this way. This, this can sound um, uh, wrong, but you need to remind yourself we're not talking about an individual coming to salvation. This is writing to believers. Uh, but one commentator says this. Perhaps what Paul is getting at is this. The divine favor of God rest on those to whom the Lord Jesus is the supreme object of love. So now that's not salvation by works. He's not speaking of salvation. But there is this idea that's, that is hinted at here, or maybe, maybe strongly hinted at, that we are to love Christ. And we've mentioned before that when it comes to our, what we are as Christians and what it is that we believe, that even though we believe in the message of, of the gospel of Christ, that we are entering into a relationship with Jesus himself, it was the person of Jesus who came to die for you and me. What God desires is fellowship with you and I as individuals. He's not looking for a mass crowd just to follow him. He's not looking for a bunch of, of mind-numbed robots who just obey blindly what he says. He wants obedience, but he wants a relationship with you and me. He wants to hear from us. He wants to speak with us. He wants that. It goes all the way back to the beginning of, of the Bible. We read that before Adam and Eve sinned, what was the habit that God had? He would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam. And that's written that way um, to kind of give to us this picture of God spending time, intentional time, with Adam to be with him. He set, time, he set a time to decide to be with him. Sometimes, you know, when husbands and wives, because of a, a, maybe a, a very busy schedule, they will set aside a certain time of the day. You know, maybe it's right when the kids go to bed, whatever it happens to be. So, and they make sure that they always have their calendar cleared out so they can spend time with each other, talking to each other, just being with each other. And that's important because of the relationship uh, that they have with each other, the relationship they, that they want to cultivate. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want you to look at verse 22. Because this verse can be easily overlooked. Um, sometimes individuals will say, well, I've never seen it before. Uh, you probably have. You just didn't pay attention to it because of, of where it's located at the end of a letter. 
But 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, it reads this way. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Now, sometimes the very first thing that pops in our mind is, well, of course, those who don't come to Christ don't love him and they're cursed. This is a letter to believers. I don't think that Paul is all of a sudden saying, oh, and remember, all those non-believers, I don't think that's what he's doing. He's talking to believers. He's trying to stress this idea, the aspect of this relationship that we have with Christ and that we are to love him. To love Christ is the indispensable condition of salvation. Again, we're not saying that you earn salvation by loving Christ first. We know that when we come to Christ, we come to Christ because God has changed our hearts. We know that God pours his love into our hearts and our hearts then are filled to capacity with his love. And we are able to love each other and able to love God. The emphasis is that we are to love him. Again, remember that when, when the Bible was being written, and you can take this all the way back to even through the Old Testament, when it comes to pagan religions, most all religions, they don't speak of a relationship with whoever it is they're worshiping. There is no personal sense of love and compassion and kindness and grace in the way that we use grace. You know, that, that's certainly not true in Hinduism. It's a very cold kind of reincarnation that they speak of. It's not true in Buddhism. In Buddhism, the goal is in the end really is to achieve nothingness, which just makes no sense. But, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, a cold universe uh, when, when you think of what it is that they're trying to achieve. When it comes to Islam, uh, even though Islam uh, talks about um, there being, you know, there are those who say that Islam is similar to Christianity. It, it really isn't. Uh, but again, there is no emphasis on having a relationship with Allah. Allah is uh, one who may or may not forgive, really depending on his mood. Uh, there's no, and, the, and in the Quran, there's no talk ever of God loving anyone. It's not in there. That, that aspect is missing. And you continue to work your way through all the various religions, and you just don't find that. So this is a... This is a uh, I guess you would even say a groundbreaking idea. And I believe that many of those uh, during the time of the early church, when they heard the message of Christianity, uh, because again, many people back then did take religion, all religion, very seriously. This was mind boggling to them. You know, for them, religion was pretty much just do some do some rituals, do your best to make sure certain guys don't get angry. Uh, And the rest of it was just kind of blind luck was kind of how they viewed things. And here's Christianity, which speaks in a very different way. So Paul then writes here at the end of Corinthians and says that if we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. A lack of love for Christ, I believe, must imply enmity towards God. Remember that there's no in between. There's no fence sitting. You are for or you are against. So that would then mean you either love or you hate. Remember we've mentioned before that when it comes to the non-believer... It is a true statement that the non-believer hates God. What's difficult to grasp with that is either for the non-believer or maybe for, for some of the non-believers that we know, when we think of hate, again, we think of this, you know, this, this wrath, this emotion, the, you know, the, the gritting of the teeth, the clenching of the fist, and, and that is what expresses hate. But that, that is not always what expresses hate. Uh, hate can be expressed in a lot of different ways. It's not always a, a word that um, is only manifested with a lot of strong emotion. But 
in the end, if you don't love God, you hate him. That's what the scripture clearly says. In fact, it tells us earlier on in Ephesians uh, that before we became Christians, we were what? The enemies of God. You may not have felt like you were the enemy of God, but you were the enemy of God. You, you were a God hater. Uh, that's what all of us were, and that's what non-believers are. So if there's a lack of love for Christ, that this does imply correctly enmity towards God. So love for Christ includes adoring admiration of his person, a desire for his presence, a zeal for his glory, and devotion to his service. That's what love for Christ is. It does not necessarily have with it, it is not necessarily ecstatic, it's not necessarily emotionally, emotionally charged. It may be for some, it may be for some at times, but it doesn't have to be that. Because sometimes there are those who maybe aren't built that way emotionally, and they can begin to worry and say, well, but I don't have that kind of feeling for God. In fact, they may think I have that kind of feeling for very few people at all. And so they're kind of on the outside. But here's the thing, that I, a, a, a short part of a sentence that, um, and I think it was Lloyd-Jones who said this, and he said this, he says, again, our love for God need not be emotionally charged, but it must be controlling. It must be controlling. In other words, it must be that which controls you. It controls your thoughts. It controls your heart. It controls your desires. It controls every aspect of your life. That's the idea here. In the same way that, again, if you are married, your love for your wife or your love for your husband is to be what? Controlling. You, you, you allow limits to be placed on who you are and what you want to do and your dreams and everything because of your love for your spouse. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But that's what takes place. If it's not controlling, then I'm not sure there's going to be love there because you're just self-serving in everything that you do and every decision that you make. So there's this idea, again, that it must be controlling. So again, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The word accursed there is the word anathema, which is simply this, let him be damned. It can sound very harsh, but again, we must understand, number one, as I've already mentioned, this was not written to non-Christians. Uh, there are millions of those who did not love the Lord Jesus. Paul is not condemning them all to hell. Again, he's writing to believers. He's writing to those who profess to be Christians. He's writing to those in the church where Jesus was preached and taught, and where every day many of them had friendship and fellowship with the Lord. So what he's saying here is a kind of test of reality. Because what's interesting is, is he does not use the word agape for love. Normally, when we speak of the kind of love we are to have for each other, it's the word agape. And what we always say when we talk about agape is, well, that's, that's a God-like love. You know, it's the way that God loves us. It's the way that we are, you know, and we are to love God that way. And the idea is that it's unconditional. Um, it's a love of the will. It's a love of choice. It's a very powerful, strong word. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here is the word phileo, which means affection. If you don't have a warm sense of affection for Christ, then you are to be accursed. Man, that's, that's, that's strong. And again, that doesn't mean that you're always running around with certain kinds of feelings. You can have very powerful feelings for an individual and yet, on the one hand, not experience them every day. Right? You know, you hear me talk a lot about my grandchildren, how much I love my grandchildren, and I have a very warm, strong, very powerful, emotional feeling for my grandchildren. But I don't feel that every day. When I think about them, when I'm with them, when I think about certain things in certain contexts, I can feel that within me. But I'm not running on every day with, ooh, 
I love, you know, I love my, that's not going on. And so it's not, that's not what he's trying to get at here when it comes to our love for Christ, that you have this feeling all the time. Because if, if you think that's what that is, you're always going to try to generate that within yourself, and that's just going to wear you out. You're going to be exhausted. It's actually much stronger than it. Even though it's the word for warm affection, it's still much stronger than just, just some kind of warm feeling that overcomes you. So, but it is, if this is what he's saying. If someone has no affection for the Lord Jesus, then what does he have affection for? If you don't love truth and you don't love mercy and you don't love grace, you don't love life itself that's reflected in Jesus Christ, then maybe you love the opposite. And that can be very sobering. So what is it that we have affection for? Paul is warning that the one who's not been touched by the reality of the presence of Christ in his life so as to begin to learn how to love is only kidding himself about his being a Christian. He's on his way to being damned. So again, this is, he's saying, remember this church has got all these problems. He's saying, you need to look at yourself. If you don't have this warm affection for Christ, you are to be damned. Man, it's just powerful when you think about that. Again, as I've said before, Christianity is not a series of philosophies or doctrines to be taught, though that's included. It is a person to know. I remember, I, I think I'd been a, I, I became a believer around the age of 10. It was years before I even grasped that or even thought about that. Why it took me so long, I don't know. I think I was being taught correctly. I know I wasn't doing a whole lot of thinking for many years. I didn't always do a whole lot of thinking about my Christian life. I did from time to time more about it as I grew older. But this, the emphasis being on, on the person of Christ was something that was kind of lost uh, to me. It was something that, that I got much later in life. I'm glad that I did. And, and many individuals that I read have helped me a lot with that. But that was just completely missing. And so, again, we all know if we were to be asked the question, do you have a, a, a warm affection for Christ, most of us already know that the answer is supposed to be yes. And so we would immediately say yes. What Paul is asking us to do, what I'm asking you and I to do, is don't give the public answer that makes you look good. Ask yourself, is this a living reality in you as an individual? Do you love Christ? Do you love him above all others? Do you love him above everything else? And we, should be, we shouldn't be too quick to say yes. Some can say yes absolutely rapidly. But I know that there are many times in my life that yes, I did love Christ. But if you were to try to corner me, or maybe you would have to give me some kind of drug, you know, the truth serum, and say, Bob, do you love Christ more than anything? I'm afraid that there were times in my life something else would come out of my mouth first. Christ is in the top three. He, he's in the top five. But is he singularly number one? And I know that he's supposed to be. But man, there's a lot of things we love. You know, when I was 18 and 19, I know this sounds shallow, and it is. But I love football. I mean, I loved it. My whole life revolved around it. It dictated how much I slept. It dictated what I ate. It dictated how much I ate. It dictated every single schedule that I had every day. It dictated where I went to college. It dictated everything. It was my identity. I mean, I, I had embraced it fully. 
Christians don't do that. If they do, they're in sin. I was in sin. And that's, you know my story. The Lord, in his graciousness, said, Bob, your priorities are wrong. Let's see. Bing. Little flick on the knee. And it was like, you know, how there's the illustration of, of Christ and the lamb. And if a shepherd has a lamb that keeps wandering off, the shepherd grabs the little lamb and breaks its leg. Then he sets it and then he carries it. That's what ha- Sometimes that is literally what must happen. And that's exactly what happened. I'm, I'm grateful now. I wasn't grateful then, but I'm grateful now. And so this is what Paul is emphasizing here at the end of Ephesians, as well as what he's emphasizing here in, um, in Corinthians. So again, back to then the meaning. What, the, what does he mean here when he says uh, this at the end of verse, um, at the end of Ephesians? He says, Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus uh, with love incorruptible. So this very powerful closing, I believe, is this is God is asking for God's sustaining grace, God's goodness, and he wants God's sustaining grace to be combined with an incorruptible love. That's the love that God has for us that is incorruptible. Those two things are combined and are given to those who what? Love the Lord. I am incapable of loving God with an undying love of my own. But God loves me with an immortal, incorruptible, undying love. And so I believe that as you, when you read through the commentaries, they get into the Greek and all those things, and they talk about the construction of the sentence and the meaning of the words, that, that the one I think that comes out the best, that, that is closest to what Paul is intending to say here, is that. That this grace, God's grace, be with all who love our Lord, Jesus Christ, with or combined with an incorruptible love. So it's being combined with the grace that God is giving to us. It is not granting God's grace towards those who have an undying love for Christ. It is that Christ has an immortal and an undying love for us. And that is absolutely amazing. That's what Paul ends with when it comes with the book of Ephesians. Of all the things he's taught and all the incredible doctrines that he's given us, this is what he reminds us of. This is, we can take this to the bank. This is, can give to you and me confidence. This can give to us and will give to us comfort. This will give to us um, uh, the ability to be brave and to face the world. This is what enables us to be content with ourselves and to be content with life because who cannot but be content with a God who gives this to them? God's grace and God's immortal love, man, that's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. And he's given that to me. And he's given that to you, to all who love the Lord, that is ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much, Lord, for your undying love for us. Father, it is amazing we think about the fact that you, the God of the universe, not only that you are good and you give to us things that we don't deserve and you give to us your your strength and your goodness that, that we've not earned, but Father, to realize that that is combined with your incorruptible love for us is just almost too much for us to be able to fathom. In fact, Lord, as we think about it for the rest of our lives, many different aspects of it, I believe, are going to kind of surface and are going to warm our hearts. And those things are going to endear you to our hearts even more. Because, Father, we know that our love for you is flawed. We do have a warm affection for you. But, Father, we we know that we are going to be heavily influenced by your goodness and love for us. 
And that will continue, Father, to draw us to yourself. We don't intend to be selfish or self-centered, Father. Oftentimes we are. But Lord, when you grace us with all of these things, we cannot help but be drawn to you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us here this evening will not only realize this great truth, but that our hearts will be endeared to you, our hearts will be warmed, and that we will be deeply comforted by these truths that are given to us by Paul. Father, you're just so good to us. We know that we can never, ever thank you enough. And Father, we're grateful that your goodness to us isn't based on our ability to say thank you. We just know, Lord, that, again, your love for us cannot be corrupted by anything. And that is amazing. So, Father, we thank you. We do love you, Father, as best we can. We pray that you would help us to love you even better. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.